All right, welcome everyone, and thank you for downloading this podcast. Whether you get your podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, our Podbean site, our website at artistemotion.com, Facebook, wherever, I want to thank you all for downloading and listening to the show. This show has been heard across the globe at this point, and it's truly a privilege for me to be able to talk to so many fascinating and amazing people who have gained so much in their personal lives and given so much to so many more through their affiliation with the martial arts. I've gotten phone calls, Facebook messages, and emails that all say they're really enjoying the content of our featured guests I've brought to the show. And literally, this show wouldn't exist without the generosity of those people who have brought their experiences and shared with us their stories. I'm grateful to each and every one of them for sharing an hour or two of their lives with us out here listening. Here's a short story of how this show has impacted someone. I got a call from an area code I didn't recognize a few weeks back. This guy was not a martial artist, but he knew of a friend of a friend who was going to be on my show via a Facebook link, and he listened to that episode. He happened to know the featured guest was a martial artist, but had never really looked into training himself. He told me he had been stuck in a job he hated and in a relationship that had turned toxic a good while ago, but he didn't have the motivation to make the changes. After he heard how much positivity was coming through the interview, something in him stirred. Within a week later, he had quit his job and moved towns, and within two weeks after that, found a job he loved, Within a month after that, he said he met the woman of his dreams and was now engaged and planning to get married this coming year. And now he's looking into taking some kind of martial arts, as he credits his life changes to the impact he heard the martial arts have made in his friend's life, who was on the show, and then the message that that guest shared. So he's in a better place just because he heard someone else's experience and was inspired to make some changes. I literally have goosebumps repeating the story. So let's move on. Now to our featured guest for episode number 21. He's a relative Kempo recluse. He's currently residing in the high deserts of California. He began training with Senior Grandmaster Ed Parker in the 1950s, making him one of a very small handful of people who are still active in the martial arts who started in that time period in that lineage. While we were recording, I think I forgot a few of them, and I apologize for not mentioning you if anybody's listening out there and you're in that category as well. My guest has a couple of different titles, and his uh, students that might hear this show... I'm using the one that he preferred me to use, and is that is Mr. Joe Dimmick. He is the head of Three Shields slash Sampai Kempo, and he's my guest today. We had a fantastic chat, and he opens up about some of his unique innovations he's made while giving all credit for his work to his teachers. Truly a class act and a humble example of a true martial artist. Without further ado, here's Mr. Joe Dimmick. And welcome to the Artist Emotion Podcast. Today my guest is Mr. Joe Dimmick. He began training in the 1950s under Senior Grandmaster Edmund K. Parker of the, the Ed Parker's Kempo lineage, and he's currently the head instructor of Three Shields Kempo. He also runs Dimmick's Doubles, which is a Hollywood lookalike agency. He's on the other end of the phone today, and we are blessed to have him here. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on board. Uh, everything's fine and great, and um, whatever's going to go on, I'm ready, I think. <laughs> So that's the ultra Cliff Notes version of your uh, your history here. So uh, whatever you'd like to expand upon, can you give us some ba- some of your background, and you know you can take us from where you started into where you're at today. All right, um, I actually started uh, in in Kempo because of basketball. I was uh, uh, playing in a basketball league, industrial league, and I saw this Hawaiian gentleman, uh, Phil. He could do anything. He was incredible. And I thought, if I could get that guy on my team for our company, which was Sergeant Engineering at that time, 
uh, I knew we could do really well in this California State Championships and all that. So I, I found out he a, was a machinist. And, of course, we had some openings at the company, and I was able to, to uh, get him over there. And they hired him for work in our company, which made him eligible to be on our team. And uh, in 1960, because of him on the team, we won the California State Championships. And, of course, uh, James Ebro is his name. And he was uh, one of Mr. Parker's uh, uh, first black belts. I knew him at first when he was a brown belt. And uh, I saw the other fellow who was in the class, which was, they were neck and neck. And uh, it was uh, Montgomery. And he made his uh, brown belt there as well. And then, of course, <clears throat> Mr. Ebrow also got his black. And there's a big discrepancy who got their black first. So I'm not going to really get involved with that. But um, both of them were fantastic. And so I didn't know he was in the martial arts. It would be Mr. Ebrow. And we're in this game. And this guy, about seven foot two, uh, was having a hard time trying to manage Mr. Ebrow. He could. He could outdrive anybody. He could go past you, fake you out. He could do set shots, jump shots. You couldn't stop him. And uh, during the game, why James even was out rebounding this guy who was seven feet one or two, and Mr. Ebro was like five foot ten, thereabouts. Yeah. And as it went on, why this guy became very frustrated, and so he pushed with a two-hand push on Mr. Ebrow, and Mr. Ebrow said, please, don't do that. And so, of course, the big guy pushed him a second time. At least that was his attempt. And I believe Mr. Ebrow did some really super high advanced version of parting wings for the front push, including all kinds of leg activity. All I saw was flashing hands and feet and that big guy just toppled and was out on the floor. I, I couldn't believe it. Now, this is 1956. There was judo in America, and Kempo, nobody heard of such a thing. So afterwards, I said, I, I don't know what you did, but I want to learn how to protect myself like that. And he, and he said what it was, Kempo Karate, and I went, Kempo what, what he? he says, and he says, don't worry about that. He says, but... And so I I, uh, I just kept bugging him to introduce me to his teacher. And he called Mr. Parker at that time his professor. So he took me down to, um, <clears throat> got me started with Mr. Parker. I talked to Mr. Parker, and it was, was kind of like, you just would know in your heart you wouldn't want to make him irritated with you. He just always had this look that would cut right through you. And he was always a very nice gentleman, of course. So that's how I got started in um, in Kempo, was only because of basketball, and um, uh, so I I um, moved forward from that point, and I stayed with Mr. Parker for all those years, and then I I made a changeover where I was out for a while, I was working at North American, and there was uh, some engineers there. This one particular fellow named uh, Lai Chung. And he taught a system from his family of Kung Fu, which I had started really before I got into the Kempo thing, if you will. And then through Mr. Ebrow, I did some work with him. And then, of course, the intro Mr. Parker. And uh, I also, once I opened my studios after I received my first degree black, 
uh, opened the city of Downey, and then, of course, one over in Fountain Valley, which is Orange County. We had another one in Huntington Beach. Mr. Ouellette was running that studio. So um, I'm still training. I also had trained with a Kung Fu gentleman as well. And then I decided also to add to uh, um, to look deeper into the Japanese systems, and I studied a group. Um, Dr. Chitosi was the uh, head of that group, and Sonny Palabrico was teaching in in, uh, in um, California area, L.A. It was uh, Chitorio Karate Do. So uh, I got up to High Brown in that one, and and uh, had a. There's really not any black belts in Kung Fu, but there is these days, I guess. But supposedly uh, Ted Lai had brought me up to that, and I, uh, of course, received my belt from Mr. Parker in 19, late 64, maybe 65, early, I don't know. Um, it says, see, I don't remember the exact dates that this all came. I have a certificate there. It has the date on it, but it's 65-something, you know. But... Um, Mr. Parker had passed on, and I had um, decided to uh, uh, kind of make a collage of what I had been trained in, and I started a group called Psalm Pai Kempo, meaning Three Shields Kempo, and uh, it's still Kempo. You know, everybody says, well, I have my own system. All we, all of us, all we're doing is rearranging Mr. Parker's furniture of Kempo. So somebody said, I have a whole new system, and you look at it, and I said, well, show me a technique or whatever. It's not that I am grading them or degrading anybody. If you're ever satisfied with what, where you are in your training, and you think, yeah, I've really made it, I'm really, I've arrived now, then I think you already lost out what you're doing. So always have your mind open to fresh thoughts, and uh, study what you have, and I don't. I don't want to teach masses anymore. I, I teach. I like to teach uh, higher ranks uh, areas instead of any beginners. But sometimes I get a letter, which I request people to write me a letter if they're going to take, like, take lessons. And from their letter, d- depending on their reason and why, either I will uh, like them, but I won't call them and I won't connect with them. And if they don't connect with me again, then I just forget about them. But if they continue to bother me. <laughs> And foolish enough to want to take lessons from me, then I will, will um, bring him on board. And and um, so there's one young man I teach. He's probably ten years old, and he had a, a life of being bullied. And so he's gained more respect now, and not only himself, but uh, his abilities. He's uh, doing very well for himself now. And so I like to um, to teach, but I don't have an interest to, to be doing it full-time. I had studios in the city of L.A., which was over in Downey. It was my first studio, and then Fountain Valley was my uh, second studio. Third studio was Huntington Beach, directed by Mr. Andre Ouellette, one of my blacks. And we had one up in Joshua Tree, where I currently reside. So I sort of, like, moved out of the main circuit of martial arts. I live in the high desert up in the mountains, uh, I've got a five-acre spread here. It's all fenced, electronic gates, the whole bit. So if when I pull into my place and lock them up, it's like, okay, I don't have anybody 
selling me any door-to-door material or banging on my door. It's uh, a great place. Lots of trees, my own well, beautiful place up here. So I'm really, really blessed. So <clears throat> I got to ask here for this one. Um, the Having trained in both Kung Fu and Kempo, um, what do you see as the similarities between your Kung Fu training and your Kempo training? Well, as we all know, Kempo is of a Chinese version. And <clears throat> yes, there's circles and straight lines and angles and so forth and movements. And it's all very similar, but I like the reality of Kempo that Mr. Parker was teaching. You know, um, some of the moves in Kung Fu, and somebody will Kung Fu want to probably choke me, which I'm not saying anything bad, so don't hurt me, <laughs> is that some of the moves uh, are very grand in the movements and poetic. Uh, now, those, of course, can be done at high speed, so I probably don't have that ability that others might have for that. <clears throat> so Kung Fu is great, and I enjoy it. It's Japanese systems. I studied, as I said, the Chitoryo Karate Do for about three years plus. And uh, I like the directness. I like the the PowerPoint of what they're doing. But my favorite is still in the, my heart belongs to the, the Chinese uh, direction. Everybody has their favorite, just like somebody's particular menu or dessert that they like. And uh, so it all varies. But I think Every way is the way, and no one way is the only way. So uh, let me back up just a wee bit here. Uh, you said you had originally uh, found out about martial arts by uh, your connection through Jimmy Ebrow, right? Uh, I had a conversation with Mr. Uh, Richard Post here a few weeks ago, and uh, he indicated that uh, part of what eventually became Three Shields came from uh, you know some of the methodologies from basketball in you know hand positioning and where your balance points at and stuff like that. So uh, Mr. Post was talking about the hand positioning relating to how Three Shields uses their hands uh, versus maybe some of the early training uh, that Mr. Parker was teaching, um, specifically, you know, as, as applied to freestyle. Well, uh, yeah, and but here's the thing. We have to make sure that everybody understands. We are still just simply rearranging Mr. Parker's furniture of Kempo. Well, it's true. Uh, the, the fakes and feints that you use in basketball, and any sport really, uh, has to be in what you do, like, for example, especially in freestyle, back on the three shields. It's three geometrical lines of protection that are placed in a position almost like, so let's say that you had your right leg in the lead, your right hand is up and left hand to cross the central reach of the body, we'll say, and... and uh, this is very uh, um, garbage analogy, but you take a, a garbage can lid and put it on the one hand of the lead, take it, put it on the second hand of the lead, and put it on your front leg area, and you've got three angles that give you these uh, lines of protection, which I call the three shields. And um, <clears throat> yes, we, we will fade back as people are coming in. I know that... Uh, uh, so it makes a right punch. There are techniques where you block it and go into a move. That's great because you should block any incoming. But if they put you in a choke, use the technique, yeah, an arm lock, uh, lapel grab. Techniques are, like, stupendous. They're great. But if it's a freestyle position, which means somebody takes a swing at you, 
Uh, we use our shields to get the first uh, idea, make sure we have obtained or attained um, um, safety. And then from there, we, we, we're in no rush for anything. We don't have to do anything. They can't hit us. They haven't hit us. Not saying that we're impervious to being struck. But um, if you're keeping your distances and moving with the flow, the old saying is when the wind blows, the reed bends with the wind. And when the wind ceases, the reed returns to its position. So so goes the thoughts on our, our shields and what we do. But everything we're doing again is for Mr. Parker. So three shields is more of a, a focus on the hand structure um, rather than losing position and like an upward block or a downward. We'll block more with our legs or knees on the downward materials so that we keep our hands. And I'm sure you've done a lot of freestyle. So when you freestyle, you, you have to have your, if your hands are sitting in your pockets or something and you've got them, somebody's going to tag you. And so distance and position, and, and then, of course, you're defending and encountering at the right time. I don't have all the answers. I have some answers. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps, uh, previous conversation, and I started, uh, and Mr. Uh, Chuck Sullivan was also in the same class, and, and uh, we lived in Southgate, so we started going traveling together when it when the, also the school in um, Southgate had closed. But I'd started earlier with, with Mr. Mr. Um, Ebrow, and then, of course, there was that Nana up to Pasadena. So it's all been, you know, Mr. Parker all the way up. That's the way it is. Eventually, that morphed into your particular rearrangement uh, of Mr. Parker's furniture. I'm going to use your term uh, into sure. into Sam Campo. and then later that was that just a name change into Three Shields? Is that was it a, a like an evolutionary process update, or what's what's the difference between Sam and Three Shields? Well, one of my students, he was uh, a Chinese, and his mother, uh, she taught. Uh, language at SC or UCLA, I, I can't recall exactly. And I said, well, hey, you know, um, what, how would you say three shields in, in, I think it's Mandarin, I believe. And I think what the things that she wrote for me were the symbols is, is Mandarin, which is on our, our patch. And so uh, I cannot read uh, the characters and the symbols of, of, of that, but Supposedly, it, it states the term, we are the possessors of three shields, something like that. And um, so uh, it was his mother, uh, his business name was Stan Kwong, and uh, she was very nice to uh, help us out with uh, getting proper symbols and the name uh, for our, our style, which, you know, the three shields is, everybody says, well, what's the big deal about your three shields? It's no magic there. It's like just the hands are in a good position. Your, your right hand's in the lead, left hand's across the central region of the body. And you can also use that connector we call uh, touch the knee, which is um, arm and arm. It gives you a long block from top to the bottom. But it's not all just that one block. It's inward, outwards, elbows. We don't use upwards and we don't use downwards. So we say, well, then you're losing the art, Mr. Parker, but probably chide me pretty heavily on that, and he would be correct. He says, 
Joseph, do not lose material. And uh, he was the greatest teacher I've ever seen. And I was so lucky to be able to take lessons from Mr. Parker. And his departure so early is a great loss to the Kimple planet, period. The transition then from, um, I, I can't remember who it was. I read somebody's website, and they said that there was uh, a point in time when you had officially renamed from Sampai to Three Shields. What was the impetus for changing the name? Okay, not everybody can speak Chinese, neither can I. Uh, but I liked I liked the idea because I wanted to know what it, how you would say three shields. So I liked the sound pie really. But then uh, around oh gosh, year two thousand I think I don't know when it was two thousand and something. I decided also to just say what well, we just call it three you know three shields Kempo or sound pie either way you want to go. So that the people in because I, I I had people come up to me and say. Sampai, man, of course, it has a couple of those guys were comedians. It's, what is that? Some pies, some cakes, some candy. What, what does it mean, you know? <laughs> and I says, what? So I says, well, you're making me laugh. So I said, look, um, you know, it means uh, it means like these three geometrical positions of the hands and the legs, and da-da-da-da. Oh, okay, that's cool. So anyway, that's how that kind of came up. And I, but I did like our connection with with going back, uh, Mr. Ebra also had studied uh, in the Shaolin temples and so forth uh, with his training that he's doing. He's a, also a, a great Tai Chi person and Kung Fu expert, as well as Kempo. Uh, he's a great practitioner. I'm very fortunate to know him. And he's a good friend of mine. I, I talk to him periodically, but he doesn't pass the DNA, and I'm way out here above Palm Springs and the high desert. Uh, in Joshua Tree, out in the boonies, which I like, and um, but he's um, he's a really terrific martial artist, and he also has deep, deep study into kung fu. Though I mean, really, he's he's excellent. Okay, so basically, just renamed it to just eliminate. Basically, just use the English terminology then. So same base material, just a different name on it. I, I did, but I sort of, you know push more of that hand structure on our shields than not. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to make it like I have created this, this most incredible brand new grand idea. So, but I, I kind of like those ideas. Uh, my work at North American, I was like liaison between engineering and manufacturing. So I spent a lot of time with the engineers all the time with, with this, and we worked on the um, Apollo mission at that time, and uh, which in 1969 we were able to, through our technology, North American, to put those one astronauts on the moon. 1969. That was pretty cool stuff to be working on. And no, I didn't personally load it up and make this uh, pod that goes to the moon, but we certainly had a lot to do with the second stage as well as the. Uh, the Apollo module as well. So very interesting stuff. And I'm uh, not really an engineer, but uh, you have to work with them a lot. You have to do the drawings. You have to know what you're talking about. At least I always thought I did. But anyhow, so, um, you know, it's just it was a great experience. But <clears throat> I do like concepts of logic and physics. And I do believe uh, Sanpai Kimpo is predicated on that. And our hand structure is very effective. And um, um, I 
I still, of course, uh, work out two to three times a week, as I mentioned earlier. I had a different conversation with you. And uh, but we aren't the only guys on the planet. We don't know all the answers. That's why I, I studied with the Japanese. I studied in Kyoto, uh, moved ahead with with the, with with the kung fu situation and and as they said James Ebrow is uh, an amazing martial artist and I was lucky to be with Mr. Parker and of course with Mr. Ebrow and I studied with that great group from the Japanese system that Chitorio Karate Do under Dr. Chitosi's group Mr. Sunny Calabrica and uh, am I an expert in that? No I'm not I don't feel I'm an expert in any of this. I'm still working on it. And there's a lot of people that have a lot more talent than I have. But I believe some part, I I think I've got it down. Okay, fair enough. When we were talking briefly before we actually got online here to record, you were talking about a concept of connectors, which I had seen a YouTube video you put up not that long ago where you were demonstrating some of them, and I really was uh, hoping we would get to talk about that. So, um what what is the the concept of connectors and how are they applied? Well, you know, uh, again, it's not magic. Uh, what it is, connectors are miniature subassemblies of very effective movements that can be, be put together at, in a moment's time. You can all of them. There's about a hundred of them now. I I started off with about half a dozen. I thought I had already arrived and was great, but after 15 years of working on on that plus. I realize that there's more, so we have about probably a hundred of those. But these assemblies, which are not difficult, they range between two to eight movements per, can be assembled in any fashion that you want, and you use them in a freestyle application and even in your self-defense movement. So somebody grabs you the program, maybe with the two-hand lapel arms extended, you do twin kimono, da-da-da-da-boom. Then from there... As a finisher, as as I mentioned, I think to you at, at an earlier point that <clears throat> when a boxer gets the other person really hurt and they're on the ropes, they know to flash into them and just really give it the gas and make sure they don't get off the ropes except they go down. The connectors work in that same, they're an accelerated combination that you can put together at moment's usage without saying, oh, I have to do it this way like a technique, I have to do it that way like this technique. You are totally freewheeling with a hundred different pieces of, of ideas that you are compiling according to how the targets open up during the impacts and the effects upon the body. So when you see that you made the strikes, the head, boom, boom, bang, the head went back, throat's open. Then you'd shift into something that's called like QC2A, QC3A, QC3, you could have done uh, QC5. You could, now, QC means quick connectors. We have transitions, which are a little bit longer pieces. We have extensions, which are probably a little bit longer than that, but they'll still range in the small version. And the quick connectors are more in the two to three or four per. So, But they all hook together in an amazing fashion. So you're truly running reality movements in a reality situation rather than being stuck only in a technique. But without the techniques, you wouldn't be able to finish them off with the connectors. 
So anybody says, oh, yeah, the techniques, Mr. Parker, this or that, I think, whoa, hold on there. Mr. Parker's knowledge, and don't forget, he's been gone a long time. And I know if he was here today, we'd be doing things that blow our minds. He was so far ahead of everybody else. He was the Einstein in the Kempel world. That's a fact. Okay, so if I'm reading uh, this correctly, then it would be basically the connectors are not necessarily just to bolt on the end of a technique, but if you needed to insert them in the middle or, you know, you started with a technique, but you need to transition to something else, that's where the connectors come in. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And sometimes, believe it or not, in a particular situation, you didn't even do a technique to open up with. You went straight into your blazing connectors and, and finished it off right there. So it's not that we always have to, like, precede them only with a technique or, or start off from a technique and then proceed with the connectors. You can have a situation where you might have only used a, a couple of connectors or, or less uh, on, on somebody that um, would set it up that you might say, oh, yeah, now I'm going to. But then you kind of go more into freestyle ideas. So it's kind of a, it gives you more of a wide open field of usage. But it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Somebody has you in a choke, back choke, side choke. I always tease and, and, and tell the guys, don't forget artichokes. But that's a special. <laughs> forget. So the point is that when you're, when you're in a choke, you can't say, well, you want to see me do five swords? Eh, maybe you, once you break free, you can do five swords on them. But you should use something that directly affects that immediate problem. And, uh, and then to make sure that they're not going to get a chance to do part two. People have said to me, well, if you do your technique, right, you won't have to do part two. Well, that's true. But there's some people that can take a lot of punishment. Maybe we were off the mark and didn't get the targets exactly right. Or that one person, as I said, could really absorb a lot of punishment. Now, you can imagine standing in front of Mr. Richard Post at six foot five, uh, 200 and some odd pounds of uh, a very strong person. Yeah, he's a big And you're going to tell me you're going to do two movements and he's going to fall on the floor. I don't think so. I'm not trying to say he's Superman. But let's put it this way: wherever we go, he's my bodyguard. <laughs> yeah, he's a good-sized dude, and you know they don't drop that easily. It is what it is. And he's a very calm guy. He doesn't push people around. He doesn't act like a, a knucklehead. He doesn't push anything on anybody. But when you see, for example, the cage door to the gorilla opens up, and that gorilla is standing in front of you. I'd certainly recommend you don't antagonize him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Post, I'm not trying to say you are a gorilla, but I'm just saying the power that you have and all the good stuff, it's just that I'm glad you're on my side of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> so since you mentioned him directly, um, I was told by both Mr. Post and Mr. Howard Singer that I was supposed to talk to you about freestyle. Yeah, well... Uh, Freestyle is a great thing, uh, and because most of the time you'll be stuck into freestyle, which is a great thing, um, we have uh, a lot of freestyle uh, techniques that we use during the course of what you're doing. Uh, 
you obviously can't just do a technique. Say, I'm going to forget that. Choke me because I'm really good at a front choke or whatever. So when you're in freestyle, we all have fakes and feints that we use to get the doors open so you can close the gap. But once you close that gap, you can't just stand there and go punch him in the face, punch him in the face, same repetitious thing or body, face, face and body, whatever. You want to have a lot of weapons to use to go to all sorts of things. But in competition, some of the stuff I'm talking about you really couldn't use because we're not really hitting anybody nor unless you're going to go full contact stuff. But, you know, a little bit of that goes a long ways and people get so many injuries and, you know, uh, but if you know that you can impart good uh, impact to targets, and I have one of those uh, um, anatomically correct items, which we, by the name of Bob, uh, from the upper half, poor boy doesn't have any legs, but um, it will give you a chance to at least feel what the, the uh, territory and the physical characteristics of the body where you land your strikes, and, and it's all different when you do an eye rake and you can see it goes across the bridge and the eye and the other eye or whatever you're doing or a palm claw or a punch or a sandwich or whatever technique or particular uh, weapons you're using. Uh, you realize that it's a different thing. Now, Bob is stationary. Probably the best thing would be something that looks like Bob that would be uh, able to, as you attack it, it would react in a way of having a reaction to the impacts as well as falling backwards or at least gliding on some kind of wheels or something, I don't know, that would give you that feeling of how they would fade away from the... For a reaction, there's a reaction. And and uh, when you hit a bag or you hit strike uh, Bob, is least looking at you like, yeah, I know what do you have, you know. So... Uh, Reality sets in that you, you're getting the most you can out of anatomically correct. When you do a rake or a punch or an elbow or a sandwich or strikes and so on. Uh, so they are good. They're really great. But still, you know, uh, technology, one of these days will probably get up to everything and be like a, uh, I don't say a robot, but something that can, you know, booze with everything and so on. But that's another story. So you had a competition team that was really successful with the freestyle competitions, right? Well, you know, I sure did. In my down studio, uh, Fountain Valley Studio did well, too, but my main studio was uh, Downey. And uh, the likes of uh, George Hay, who was a monster that used to terrorize the rings, Darwin Jones, uh, Howard Singer. Uh, there's a whole list of guys that I had that were really good fighters. And uh, Brian Sonnenberg. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, when I put a team in there, uh, we had a black belt team, we had a brown belt team, but um, we fought against Mr. Norris's crew. Uh, yes, sometimes they, they won too. Sometimes we would win. Mr. Norris's guys were really tough guys. And there's a lot of other people. Mr. Stone's students. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, there's a lot of great people out there. I'm just, so if I leave somebody off the list, please don't, don't think I am demeaning anybody. But um, 
fought a lot of people, and um, Mr. Darwin Jones, uh, Mr. Singer, they won internationals, they won state. Uh, we always made a, a pretty good impression that had a very good forms artist, too, which was uh, Matt Dominguez. And uh, <clears throat> we had a couple of tough ladies, um, which fought very well in the ladies' division. Uh, Kim Stute, Julie Rouse. They, boy, they used to terrorize a lot of those poor kids, but they didn't hurt people. They just were about business getting them done. So, but, you know, we're not the greatest fighters. We're not the best martial artists. I'm not the best martial artist. And uh, I know a lot of folks uh, have pretty big titles. I just like to go with the fact that I, you know, I'm a black belt, high-ranking black. I never really cared much for the 10th degree because I think that should be the supreme, absolute, perfect martial artist and I know all too well what uh, areas Joe Demick needs to work on. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, we strive. We all strive to do the best we can. And that's really cool. But uh, anyway, things that they have totally arrived. And they no longer need to worry about. They've got it all. They're the greatest. And they might be. I, I don't know. I, I don't have that ability. So I. I just know I have to keep working on everything, and I, I uh, keep it going. And this December, if things go right, as I might have mentioned earlier, I'll be um, 80, 80, 81, no, 82. Old age setting in. I think I know my name, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So with that competition team, that it means you guys had to do a lot of freestyling. Um, Howard, I think, mentioned that you guys even had like some inner school or intrust school tournaments going on, right? We certainly did. And uh, <clears throat> the one guy that everybody just feared to fight was a fellow by the name of George Hay. We called him Baby Huey, like that great big cartoon character. <laughs> Whatever he touched the break. I couldn't keep <sighs> on the bag. I had a, this big bag that everybody was hitting. And every time he would break the chain when he would hit it. And sometimes, uh, in his glee of freestyling, uh, we had our we had an intermediate room and a beginner's room, and they were they were back to back on this one wall. And one time, uh, uh, the wall crashed, and this guy's uh, bottom was sticking in the into the beginner side. And then George Hay and says, "Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Mayo. I'm so sorry." And so, so then he pushed him back through the wall and threw him back in the floor. And then he went on the other side and he looked at him and he says, "Sorry, Mr. Dimmick." Anyway, uh, he would he was he was very powerful. Now, Mr. Post is another one of these powerhouses. Gee, many Christmas. So, um, yeah, we we've, we've done quite well with everything. And you know, one of the toughest guys, but we we sure gave. Mr. Uh, Chuck Norris's group a hard time, and they of course it was it was usually between us always finishing up who's going to take the tournament, and uh, sometimes they won, sometimes we would win. But uh, Mr. Norris is a great martial artist and a real true gentleman. I'm so impressed with him; it's uh, amazing. But there's a lot of great martial artists, but he is a really fine example of 
what a martial artist should be like. He had manners. He was respectful. It's hard to find these days. So when you have uh, you're gearing up for those competitions and putting your t- competition team together, uh, you have in, in every single school who teaches freestyle, which is should be all of them, I think. But um, yeah, you, you always have people that are coming in that are just scared to get on the mat and freestyle. So how do you get those kind of people to sort of come out of their shell a little bit, start getting out there and moving? Well, we would uh, start off uh, once they became a one tip, or nobody sparred until they were one tip. First level, seventh bond. Until they got their first level, they didn't even touch freestyle. Once they graduated up to their first level, we introduced them to freestyle, and I explained to all of them that, look, you, we're, we have sparring every night, and what we would do is we'd start off with what we call 20%. 20% speed, 20% power. And you could spar the slow motion, which was not reality and timing, but it gave them a chance to get a sense of how they could keep their position, keep their shields up, move and flow with the force, and return it back. We talked about the read and the wind. Um, and so that would give them more of a confidence level. Not, not everybody wanted to be into tournaments, nor did they have to be. But I knew they all should know how to spar. So on the street, if somebody just starts boxing at them, they can't request that they, you know, grab them in a choke or something, and then they could do their martial arts. But so we had specific techniques that we showed for freestyle, as well as we did for techniques for other things in life. And we had fakes and feints, and and um, they really had some nice repertoire in in their computer of their mind. So when they were in the ring, they weren't thinking, "What am I going to do? I don't want to do." Well. They could uh, initiate attacks. They could stay in their defensive forms and then counterbalance that back and forth with defense and offense. And the more they practiced the materials, um, and those materials for the freestyle techniques weren't necessarily taught at that time, so I kind of ventured into my own realm of really working uh, to make that happen. And I I think our group speaks for itself. We've won internationals, we've won state championships, we've won all kinds of local Mike Stone tournaments that they had, and so did other schools. I mean, sometimes it's not your day. Sometimes it it could go one way or the other, but uh, I would say that whenever we'd show up, people would come up and say, oh, no, is your team here today? (laughs) Yeah, they're here. Oh, crud. You know, so, (laughs) you know, they were afraid of us because there are a lot of great fighters out there. But we always, uh, nobody in my crew, anybody, everybody, they had manners, proper ring etiquette, and proper respect for the judges and respect for their opponents. And if they didn't perform, I would jerk them out of the ring and tell them, you are out today, have a seat. And I never really happened but one time in all the years we had a fellow that was not going to mention names. But the kid was good, but he was sort of hot-headed and uh, uh, he got better with his control later in his life, but uh, I, I I just walked in the ring. And I says, "All right, sorry, this this match is over." And I says, "You can't come in." I says, uh, "Here's how it works." I just grabbed him by the collar, jerked him out of the ring, made him sit down. And I said, "He's disqualified. My student, he's not fighting." I says, okay, well then he's disqualified for leaving the ring. I says, "Great, he, he's out." So. 
I, I don't I don't put up with that kind of stuff. And I think martial artists that are rude and overbearing and sure they might have a great uh, talent, but if you become a bully, even after doing the arts, you miss the whole thing, what the whole thing's about. Life, health, respect, talent, skills, but don't, don't be a, don't be a, um, a bully. It's just, you know, and we're not the toughest guys. I'm not seeing anybody. There's some pretty great fighters out there, and and uh, we admired a lot of different styles. Mr. Stone's people are very incredible as well, and many others. But I just know that we had a lot of lot of um, combat with Mr. Norris's teams, and of course he's an extremely great gentleman himself and martial artist. Excellent. So basically, you're just—I uh, mean—to tie it back to the, the original question on that one. Basically, we're working with people who are—they've got some level of seasoning, but trying to get them into the ring, you're giving them base combinations that they can start looking for opportunities with. Definitely, I, I furnish my my sparring team with with very viable items that could get you into score, and I believe with a very fine self-defense of our shields. So uh, a lot of folks would come up to me at these terms and say, what is that thing you guys are doing with your hands? What is, what is that? What, what is that? It's well, we'll just make sure our hands are up, you know. So it wasn't anything really super magic, but we didn't open up on big moves. We kept a more uh, uh, closed space. We offered small targets to anybody. And as I mentioned about the force comes in, you go with the force. Don't think you have to stand there and be like King Farouk and like, pound somebody because they come in. Go with the flow. Don't over... You know, now you take guys like like George Hay, Baby Huey, and, and Mr. Post. Uh, there's no way on the planet Earth I'm going to try to match streets with Mr. Post. You know, look, I... Yeah, so I, I, I have to, yeah I've got a vehicle that has this much horsepower, and uh, he's driving a giant diesel truck with thousands of horsepower. So I'm going to be the in-and-out boy and make them get them, kick them, get them in the groin, and get out of there because you, you can't. Oh, well, you, you know his size. So there's a lot of guys that are pretty good-sized people, but sometimes people that are really big are, are not as quick. But that doggone post, <laughs> he's very slippery. And he's quick, too. Mr. Parker... When he first saw him coming up to the ranks, he said, Hey, Joseph, I like that big kid over there. I said, Well, that's, uh, that's Richard Post. He said, Let's keep an eye on him. I says, Okay. He says, I think. He... And so uh, as he went up the line, uh, Mr. Parker, he kind of favored sometimes a lot of the guys who were a good size, too, because, you know, he was always considered a bigger guy himself during his years in the martial arts. And, uh, but of course, his talent was off the charts. So, and uh, I'm so glad I got to study with him and Mr. Ebro. So, very, very fortunate guys. I started way back when I did. That was the coming of martial arts in the United States, 1964. 60. I started Mr. Parker somewhere. Oh my gosh, back in there. So. Actually, it was 1950. 
1956. From that era, I think there's only like three of you guys that are still around and actively training. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think I think it's just you. I think it's you and Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Hebler. I think that's it. Yeah, and those those two fellows are really good martial artists. So um, you know, they might say, "Well, how old are those guys?" I'll be supposedly, Lord willing, as I told earlier, I'm. I'll be uh, 82 in December, and uh, well, who knows? 81, 82. Who cares, right? But anyway, it's all good, <laughs> and I, I love the arts. I'm glad I got into it, and um, uh, it's been a great ride. And I appreciate your interest. I've been around for a while. Are you kidding? We've had some great information come out of this talk. Holy catfish, is there any money? Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping to eventually get sponsored AdWise, actually, so at some point down the road, I hope so. Yeah. Well, keep going with your processes. I, I, I really applaud you for this, and it gives you a chance to maybe catch some of the guys that won't be around forever. We talked about your some of your early history in the 50s. We talked about you know some of your training through uh, Chitoru and through Gong Fu and... Uh, the development towards the future of Sampai, which then eventually begat, begat uh, Three Shields Kempo. Uh, talked about some of yes. the competition teams, talked about some of the connectors, which that's another idea that I'm really intrigued by, by the way. You only have one video out on it, and uh, I'd like to see more. Uh, hashtag cheap plug. Well, thank you for that. I, I was just trying to, uh, you know, it's like anything. You, <clears throat> you don't want to try to hogtie anybody and say, all right, you're going to learn this. You know, and... and uh, Sometimes you show a glimmer of something and it attracts either the right people or it doesn't attract anybody. So I'm not trying to uh, overhaul anything or try to get out there and say, if you don't do this, you're stupid. This is the only way to go. It's not. Three ways to wait. So. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own things that, that drive them and everybody's got their own things that call them, right? So, you know, that right. that has intrigued me. So the more information I can get out of it, I'd, I'd love to hear more. So maybe that in the future. Cool. Well, by golly, we can always talk about it. So, uh, um, we talked briefly about Dimmick's Doubles. So that's your Hollywood lookalike agency, right? Yes, yes. Uh, I started that actually. Um, wow. Um, well, here's what happened about that. Uh, people used to think I looked like Dirty Harry back in the in the mid '60s when uh, Mr. Uh, Clint Eastwood was doing the Dirty Harry detective from San Francisco. That was his main thrust. Not that he hadn't done a Western before that, but, um, <clears throat> and so wherever I went, everybody would go, hey, Dirty Harry, this, Dirty Harry, that. And uh, one of my actor friends came over and he said, Joel, there's this uh, lookalike agency, man. You guys send your picture in. I said, oh, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. He goes, oh, come off it for crying out loud. So we, Came over and he took some Polaroid pictures of me. He said, "Well, put on put on a thing with a coat and a tie." And and he brought a plastic gun over. Or, or I had one. I'm not sure what it was that the kids had or something. I says, "Oh, okay." So he took some shots of me with this crazy plastic gun. And um, <clears throat> about three days later, I get a call from this agency. At that time, it's called Ron Smith's Liberty Lookalikes. And and so. Uh, he says, hey, uh, we saw the picture, man. We want you to come in here. I said, well, I, I really have never done this. He says, well, come on in. We would like to talk to you. So I thought, well, 
get the heck over there. It was in Hollywood, uh, 8,000 uh, uh, Hollywood Boulevards, but it was, he had an office in the building there. So I went up there and he says, you know, we're doing a commercial for Maxim Coffee on Wednesday. Would you be available to be in it? I sure, I guess so. Uh, and then he says, well, the pay is this one. Whoa, what does it pay? And I thought, well, I'd have to throw a lot of chops to make that much money in just one session. So I thought, that's not a bad idea. And we had uh, Barbara Streisand right there uh, with me as well. And then they had the real Kirk Douglas, uh, who was the real star of it. And so they used us on some other things, like we were stars in the background doing something, whatever. But that was how I first got started in, in that business. And then after that, it just took off. And then... Um, I was able to morph it into more of a, a operation where we, because we, we did a lot of stuff with uh, corporate level stuff where these companies would want a big party and they want to have like a Hollywood theme party. And then the lookalikes were like really in demand. And so I thought, well, goodness. So I opened an agency. Uh, I was with Ron Smith to start, but we found out later he would give you like 500 bucks for an appearance and he would keep like the other 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000. Wow. He would do crazy stuff on the numbers and a holy Toledo. So, uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to just market myself. And, uh, so I went to these direct marketing companies where when a, say a, a fortune 500 company comes into California and they want to have a big party. So they go to this, groups, which are these, these marketing companies, and they would give them a place where to have a, which, which grand ballroom to be in, here's a great orchestra, here's some great uh, decorations for your party. And so I, I went to these um, special agencies like that, direct marketing, and I said, hey, look, I would go in uh, looking like Dirty Harry, and of course, I would get an immediate uh, response. And, and um, so they said, wow, this is pretty cool. I said, well, what do you do? I says, well, we just go to the party. We walk around, take pictures, and talk to people. Well, do you sing or dance? I says, you wouldn't want to hear me sing, and you certainly don't want to see me dance. I <laughs> says, but people want a picture with us. They said, well, let's, let's try it. I said, okay. So uh, I did this party for them. And he says, holy catfish, they love you guys. Uh, so that started my agency and then I found out there was a lot more of those direct marketing companies. I started pandering my uh, pictures and material to these companies and before I knew it, I, I, I had this company I called it Demix Doubles and um, other lookalikes started flocking to us and we sort of like superseded Ron Smith by eons and finally surpassed him because if this person did a job for us, like say they did a, oh, a two-hour mix and mingle, walk around, talk, and so forth, pictures. So I'd say, okay, um, here's what it is. Uh, I'll give you $500 for the two hours, and I charge my client maybe $750, $650. Something reasonable. It wasn't like you give the lookalike $50 and keep 3000 for yourself, which I might add that other agency would do such just like that. And uh, so they said, well, Joe, you're, you're a square shooter. And I thought, well, I've got you fooled. Anyway, 
So but we stayed with, <laughs> with, with reality, prices and reality. But those are the guys making the party work. So if they uh, got 500 bucks, I'd probably charge like uh, maybe 650 700 something like that. And the client would pay me, and then I would pay the, the lookalike. And, of course, I got to do a lot of work myself with that. And uh, then as the years went on, Mr. Eastwood did the Western stuff as well. So I thought, well, I'll have to get me a Western garbage, which I copied what he did, like in Outlaw uh, Josie Wales and uh, some of the poncho-clad stuff. So I had a poncho and had a really a cool hat made. It was uh, out of leather. I had this leather uh, specialist that I, I knew, and I said, can you, and I took a picture of that from the Two Meals from Sister Sarah film. I said, can you make me a hat just like that? He said, sure I can. So uh, he did, and and uh, I still have it. It's uh, it's all leather. Everybody wants to touch my hat, and everybody wants to wear it. I said, no, thank you. So, so uh, uh, I have this hat that, I wear it and I've got a nice poncho that's all with it and spurs and boots and the the fake guns and fake dynamite, you know. Uh, so uh, I don't go to anything in public. It's, well, it's a non-shooter gun. I said, no, 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 no. It's plastic. It looks great. I said, the only way I could hurt you, this plastic gun is maybe throw it at you really hard and hit you on the nose or something, but it's plastic. And then, of course, my dynamite stick, uh, my wife is getting props, so she made me this thing. It's all red, got a nice big white wick coming out of it, uh, which is actually a piece of a, a white uh, electrical wire. It looks great, though. You can't light it because it's just nothing but <laughs> plaster of Paris, and it's got this, this, this crazy wire. But it looks great in the pictures, and um, so I, I, uh, I go to these parties. Uh, we mix and mingle. Uh, take pictures and talk to them and and then all the guys that I was at a, uh, an appearance last uh, Friday uh, over in uh, Orange County actually at the, at the Grove we had Jack Nicholson lookalike uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Madonna and some dumb guy in a western outfit oh that was me so uh <laughs> You know, and people, they really they really get a kick out of it because, you know, you, you drop into the whole thing. And my voice has always been kind of soft anyway. And um, so when I do the lines like, you boys going to pull those pistols or just whistle Dixie, you know, I can do the lines and they all like, oh, yeah, that's great. And, of course, the Jack guy has got the whole <laughs> I get a kick out of just being around with the other guys because they, they do such a super job and people really. So it goes over well at these parties and they know we're, we're lookalikes. Um, if anybody gets into this and they, their ego goes beyond their, their value, uh, and I've seen it happen where they think they're a star, you know, and uh, and they abuse the use of that, like in public where they they act like they really are that person and they, they uh, take advantage of getting perks and stuff. But, you know, I was always just, they say, hey, blah, blah. But they all know what Clint Eastwood looks like now uh, versus uh, then. But I don't look like Mr. Uh, Mr. Eastwood at this time. I'm, 
I'm heading on the higher edges, but for some reason, uh, my own big mug is still hanging together. So um, I can pull off these Western characters easy. I don't do Dirty Harry. It's, most, most people don't even know what Dirty Harry was or is, but they know the Westerns. So, you know, I, I uh, mainly do just the Western stuff now. But it's a lot of fun. You meet a lot of nice people, these parties. Uh, they, they take a lot of shots, and they ask you about how'd you get started, and baby, but Abadou, you know. So uh, at age going on my 80s here, I never had suspicion I'd still be doing lookalike work uh, in, in my early 80s, if you will. And uh, But like I said, I, I uh, still work out in the arts, and Stay nice and trim, and and uh, I love tempo. It's such a fast, fast uh, art. Even though I did study Japanese system, and I liked it very much. And uh, kung fu, uh, it's more flowing and it's beautiful. But I, I like tempo, and so our sampai is is pushing uh, with a lot of emphasis on the defensive structure, and then the material that we do these connectors really uh, give you a, a advantage of high acceleration finishers uh, after you've closed the gap. Once the gap is closed, they, they put you in a, in, a, in a little telegram or a choke or what have you, and da 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 now you're free of their hands and such. Then you figure, oh, I don't want part two to happen, so then we turn up the, the speed star drive and really tear in with those connectors and... and uh, they're primarily focused pretty much from neck up on the final finishing portions. Sure, do we strike to the groin? Yes, do we strike to the body? But not too many guys get knocked out striking in the body. But anything from the neck up, that's the main circuit board we like to go after. All right, fair enough. So uh, would you like to hear a, a little funny story from me? I would like to hear any story at all. Sure. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it'd be funny or not, but it, you know, it's it's uh, it, it, it illustrates uh, a little bit here why I'm so happy to have this conversation. So, um, oh. for many many years now, I have uh, I guess that's a relative term depending on your experience level in life. But anyway, for many many of my years, uh, I have enjoyed Mel Brooks's movies. Love them, and. Um, that extends to movies that Mel Brooks was in as well. And I went through a, a period when I was, uh, I'm actually working on my master's degree as well. And one of the only ways I could concentrate when I was really tired was to put on something that made me laugh because it, you know, kept the endorphins going. So I was able to, you know, laugh a little bit and then keep working a little bit and laugh a little Absolutely. bit and keep working a little bit. So um, oh, yeah. in December, right before I talked to Mr. Post, there was a movie that came on called Robin Hood Men in Tights. And I've I seen that, heard of that. I've seen that movie probably a hundred times. And I was getting ready to talk to Mr. Post, and I had just talked to Mr. Singer. And there's a scene in the movie where there's a dirty hair or a uh, uh, Clint Eastwood lookalike in that movie as well. And I literally slapped myself in the face, complete face palm, when I realized who that was. Yeah, you know, uh, working with Mr. Brooks was absolutely fair. And then Dom Delwood. Tom Deloise, oh my gosh. When the cameras were down, oh my word, he, he, so many shenanigans <laughs> on the set. 
you know, we'd be sitting there, and there was this bowl of peacocks. He's throwing nuts at everybody, and he's laughing his face off. And he's, all right, come on. And I, I Mr. Brooks, he says, now, look, Dom, listen, the suits could come down any time and look at the stuff we're doing here. Now, you got you got to get back on program. And he's, okay, okay, okay. And then Bill would walk away, and he tagged him in the back with another pecan nut or something. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was absolutely... And then when he do my close-ups, he stand there by the camera making all kinds of faces at me. <laughs> I was trying to had to end up biting my tongue and squeezing my. Anyway, it was it was uh, a great great thing to work with Mr. Brooks and them, and, and and they're all really nice people. I got to ask, how did you land that role? Well, uh, quite a few years back, when I was two years old, just kidding, but a lot of years back, I, I was on Hollywood Squares uh, uh, as a lookalike. Well, one of the guys on the Hollywood Squares was Mr. Brooks. So he came up to me and I was on that. He says, someday, somehow, I'm going to use you in one of my films. I says, oh, well, gee whiz, I, I'm up for it, I think. Yeah. Oh no! Don't do that. <laughs> so, so he said. He said, "Okay." He says, "Well, nice, to, nice to know you, Joe. He's really he's a very nice gentleman, and uh, no egos, nothing like that. Just, but just a lot of fun." And so, I get this call from from uh, uh, an agent out of Hollywood because I've got there's a guy representing me in, in Hollywood as well, supposedly, and um, so he says, "Hey." Uh, Mr. Brooks wants to see you for this film, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. Would you be up for it? He says, "Is there smog in L.A.?" Sure, I would be. And so, I, I went down and met with him, and and he says, "Looking good, Joe." He says, "Okay, well, uh, you're gonna you're gonna be in this." I says, "Well, uh, all right." So uh, that's how I uh, just went down and had a quick interview with him, and so boom, they had me had me on the set and we shot that, that movie. But he was a really a great guy and the kid that played the the sheriff, he was a very nice guy and Dom was great. Everybody was like really cool. And uh, nobody had stuffy egos, you know. I I thought that was nice to see people of worth not to be all s- stuck on themselves. So and of course um I've got to do quite a few different things. And did you ever see that uh, thing on Discovery called The Wild in the West by chance? I remember seeing the title. I do not remember if I actually watched it, but I'm going to put that in my notes now. It's a really good piece. Uh, it, anyway, they contacted me, the people behind that, and they said, we got this really project, uh, and, uh, we, and so they sent me the script. And I was reading it. I mean, I already caught the page. And in fact, I'm the guy that, is the guy that leads the whole thing through the whole bit. And I, I, I call him. I says, I, are you sure you want to have me this much? And I'm like, what? This, I'm on every scene. He says, yeah, that's the purpose. And I said, oh, okay. So if you get a chance, it's not just me that I'm seeing, but it's really cool. They went to all the main Western towns and spots where all the major motion pictures were shot with John Wayne uh, over, uh, over at... Um, Arizona and California and Nevada and and uh, it was really it was a it was a long shoot and 
And um, not because I'm in it. I'm saying that it really is a cool piece that they did. So I was really fortunate to land that one. I'm going to put that in the notes. Yeah, it was. It's a really. They they did a great job. They seem happy, so I, they're happy. I'm happy, but um, it played very well. In fact, this is for the BBC, and then they put it in the thing like the the like the Emmy Awards over in England, and it won the called the Golden uh, God something. It won first place, and uh, so they wanted me to come all the way over there and and. Um, sit at the table with all the stars. I says, well, at that time, my mom was gone into a, I was living in Oregon, and she had some problems with her heart, and she eventually passed, but I couldn't leave there when my mom was real. So I told myself, I'm sorry, I can't do it, you know. But um, uh, it all worked out, so but the Wild in the West was finally done. I got to be in it, and, and um they did a really nice job. They made me look good. <laughs> but I, I rode a horse a lot. I, I'm not really a, a very good on a horse. Uh, if I'm walking the horse, I look great. If it's starting to, to really take off, I look like Carmen Miranda bouncing around on a horse. You know, so I told him, I says, well, if the horse walks, we're good. Otherwise, you're going to think I'm an idiot. <laughs> and they said, what's the auto ride? I says, now, horses and myself, that's a very big animal. And I've had one of them step on my feet. I've uh, had one turn its head and go, <clears throat> knock you sideways across the room. So I said, I- I'm going to stay away from the horse routine unless I walk with it. That's it. And I just sit on it and walk. Or, in one scene, they had me <laughs> walking with the reins, the horses fall behind me. It was a really nice horse, too. They, it was like one of the best horse I've ever seen. It was calm and collected and quiet and really nice. And, and of course, I always give him carrots every day right off to get books. So he started looking at me with a, with a greater appreciation. <laughs> yeah, nothing like buttering up to a 2,000-pound animal, right? I thought, kid, just don't step on my foot, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but it's good stuff. All right, that's been uh, just about just over an hour of conversation here with Mr. Joe Dimmick. He's a head instructor for Three Shields Kempo and been training since the 1950s, which I'm incredibly honored and blessed you chose to spend some time with us today getting this recording done. It was uh, highly requested by several people who've been on the show and several people who recommended I for you know to get a hold of some people. So I'm truly honored and grateful. Thank you so much for being on the show today, sir. Well, thank you very much. I, I hope it works out for you. Um, as a parting word, I would like to say that remember everybody, every day is the day. Enjoy the full day and be sure during those days or that day, you tell the people in your life that you care about, that you love them. Don't let those days go by. It's important. That's wonderful. And then if people want to get a hold of you, I believe you said your website is dimmixdoubles.com. And you have some contact information up on there. That that's the best way for people to get a hold of you, correct? Yeah, it is. They'll go there, and like I said, I pared it way down just to a front blank screen with that it says Joe Dimmick Dimmickstevels dot com. You know, that way they can uh, they can send me an email there, and and uh, that'd be great. There we go. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time out, and uh, I think we're 
good for recording there. This show just keeps getting more and more fun to produce. It took me a couple of months to get a hold of Mr. Dimmick and a couple of phone tag opportunities before we were able to get online and get this interview recorded. I learned some cool ideas from talking to him, and I chuckled listening back to this, remembering <laughs> facepalming myself watching his appearance in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Great movie. I've gone ahead and included links to Mr. Dimmick's website as well as his profile on the IMDb site in the podcast uh, links on, I believe it's just going to show up on the Podbean website. Uh, it's artistemotion.com. If anybody else is interested, this is April 2018, and the Amazon Prime video has the video he referenced called The Wild and the West, available for free if you have an Amazon Prime subscription too. I don't know how long it's going to be up there, but as of right now, it, it is available as I'm recording this episode. Uh, big, big thanks to Mr. Howard Singer and Mr. Richard Post for helping to make this interview happen, and a huge thank you to Mr. Dimmick for t- making the time to let me interview him. I had a blast. So that's it for this week. Uh, next week for episode number 22, barring any weird technical techie difficulties, we have part two with Senior Grandmaster Chuck Sullivan. His first appearance in episode number 11 came out February 12, 2018. If you haven't heard that one, go listen to that one in the interim so you're all caught up. His first episode we covered 1959 to 1965-ish, so this part two brings us from that point up until the present day. Good times. Okay, I think I'm good for this week. Uh, the normal here's where you can find us stuff. The website is www.artistemotion.com. Facebook is artistemotion.com. Uh, Spotify, new, 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 is Artist Emotion. iTunes is www.artistemotion.com slash iTunes. Google Play is www.artistemotion.com slash Google Play. Drop me an email if you have ideas, comments, complaints, or requests for a guest. It's uh, pod at artistemotion.com. Yep, that's it. I'm Steve Zalazowski, invading your auditory sensors next time on the Artist of Motion podcast.